0: We're continuing our series in Genesis, and we're coming to Genesis 2, verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. It'll also be on the screens. It's the word of the Lord. So the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, back in the spring, there was a columnist for the Washington Post by the name of Christine Imba, who wrote an article that was entitled, Why Consent? Is not enough for a sexual ethic. I do realize that for a certain generation, when you look at what's going on around you now, we're tempted to say, "Well, this generation has no real sexual ethic, uh, sort of a anything goes mentality." But that's actually not true. When you realize if a sex act must be consented on by each party, that this generation believes is absolutely sacred. But Emba begins to question in her article if consent alone is enough. The problem, she says, is that, quote, young Americans are engaging in sexual encounters they don't really want and for reasons they don't even agree with. She attributes this depressing state of affairs to what she calls, quote, turbocharged by pornography, which has mainstreamed ever more extreme sexual acts as well as dating apps, she says, that lead one to expect that there should be more partners Me readily available. The experience for sex, she says, has, many, has left many people feeling sad, unsettled, even traumatic. Here, quoted here, she says, even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections to each other and to our deepest selves. Despite the many and popular arguments that it's really only a physical act, it is clear to almost anyone who's had it that sex has vast consequences, some that can last long after the encounter ends. She goes on to question whether or not there are some sexual practices that have even eroticized degradation and dehumanization. Are these practices ethically valid even when consent is obtained, she asks? Quote, non-consensual sex is always wrong, full stop. But that doesn't mean that consensual sex is always right. Even sex that is agreed to can be harmful to an individual, to their partner, or to the society at large. It's always amazing to me when someone from way outside the Christian tradition kind of stumbles upon the fact that, you know what, I think there might be right and wrong when it comes to human sexuality. But I realize that for religious people like us, it's very easy to condescend to the world around us. But I don't also think that we do that necessarily well of a job of countering those tendencies. Last week, we looked at Genesis 2 and how it frames our understanding of the idea of gender. And so this week, what we want to do is to expand on that to see how it is that this this powerful union of souls finds its expression in human sexuality. And you see it in the the passage Brian just read. Look at Adam's poem there in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We said last week that it's just Adam looks at Eve and says, wow, like her, I am her. I see myself in her. She is perfectly suited for me. And, of course, we added last week of saying that he probably thought to himself, I like her because she's just like me in every way except for one place. This is likely the reason for the commentary that Moses adds in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Moses is talking about sex. He's teaching these Israelites that the one flesh union of bodies that comprises the powerful union between Adam and Eve, is sacred. But what we often miss in this remarkably simple statement is the overwhelming profundity. There is mind-bending depth to the Bible's unique description of just what sexuality is. And I think it's a sight that can really only be seen when you view it from the perspective of God himself and also from what the Bible teaches throughout, which is how I want to unpack it this morning. Three points. I want to see sex in the Trinity. I want to understand sex as it traces throughout the Bible and then maybe do a little bit of application for the married and the single among us this morning. First of all, let's take that first topic of sex in the Trinity. Look, before I get into this, I do want to acknowledge my indebtedness to a PCA pastor. In Lexington, Kentucky, at Tates Creek PCA Church, Robert Cunningham, who back in February did a conference on this particular topic that I would very warmly commend to you. He's done some wonderful work in this area. I even emailed him, asked him for permission to use some of this material. But if you listen to it, it's gonna sound familiar because that's where I'm borrowing from when it comes to his research. But look, in order to understand why Moses blesses these sexual unions between a man and a woman in the way in which he does, you have to get a glimpse into the Bible's purpose of human sexuality. And it's rooted, we believe, in the very definition of God as a holy trinity. Now, look, I want to warn you that what we're about to discuss may sound irreverent to some of you, might even sound blasphemous to others. But because of how we've perverted sexuality in our culture, that's why we usually react that way, not because it's something that's wrong in and of itself. You've heard it said many times, obviously from this pulpit, that there's hardly anything that is more distinctive about Christianity than its conception of God. God is one God, but he's also three persons. Now, of course, by that we don't mean that God is divided up like you would sections of a pie, but that he is essentially one essence in three persons. And the deep meaning of this truth is just the theological gift that keeps on giving because it means among other things that God is complete in himself. God needs nothing. Most of which or least of which does he need is love. Have you ever thought about that? God doesn't need love, why? Because he has love existing within the fullness of his own essence. So much so the apostle John would later on say God is love. He's the fountain of love. Love is what it is because of God's nature. And what that means then is every single aspect of human love is therefore a reflection of the love that exists in God. Think about that. You and I know something that we would call friendship love because God himself is loyal within himself. He is a companion to the three members of the Trinity. We also know, therefore, there is a committed love that exists because God is constant and faithful even within himself. So the point is, human love is a reflection of truth that exists, and I would use this word carefully, exclusively in this kind of God. Um, I've had a number of conversations with people who have been through Alcoholics Anonymous many in our own congregation who've been extremely helped by it. And I think it's wonderful. I still continue to encourage people who are trying to recover from alcoholism to walk through the 12 steps. But if I could just take slight issue with the third step on this one, where participants are encouraged to find God, quote, as you understand him. In other words, it's a very American way of thinking about God. Everybody has a conception of the deity. Everybody has a projection of what God, I don't know, might actually be. My point is, is that's the reverse of this truth. We only know love because we are living images of a fullness that is only in a God who is a trinity. You and I only have a concept of love because he is love in his own self-definition. Now, here's what about to rock your world. Even erotic sexual love is equally a reflection of God's character. I'll even go further. Sexual love is itself uniquely able to image God, even more than other kinds of love, other brands of love. Robert Cunningham says this, erotic love is the closest thing we come to grasping the God whose image we bear. Now for a second, please don't think about love in terms of the smarmy Hallmark movie, kiss at the very last scene of the movie kind of love. I'm talking about the ecstasy and rapture of intoxicating sexual experience that I'm guessing occupies most of our imaginations. That is the kind of love that the Bible presents to us that is the only way to showcase the God who exists in himself In this eternal exchange of euphoric, blissful, and exultant love. In other words, we're not projecting a sexualization onto the Trinity. We are saying that out of the fullness of his affection within himself, he gave humans a gift to give them a glimpse. It's the reverse is true. Think about this. Animals don't make love. Animals mate and procreate. Only humans can do that. Your dog, secondly, doesn't wear clothes, does he? Your dog doesn't wear clothes. He waltzes around the house just flaunting it, right? You and I, though, we cover our sexual parts. Why? Because we instinctively know that there's something sacred about our sexual bodies. And the Trinity proclaims that consecration. Say it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, but our sexual parts declare the love of God. That's the image. Anything less falls short of the Bible's view of human sexuality, which leads me to the second point. That's sex in the Trinity rooted there, but the largest point here is how the Bible wraps this idea of sex, even in its own story. And I want to state it very baldly from the beginning. The story of the Bible is rooted in the wonder of human sexuality. Don't believe me? Buckle up. Look, we've been seeing this story unfolding of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. But next week, Brian is going to come and show us that this creation story is about to become a tragedy and even a redemption story. Why? Because man and woman are going to ruin their relationship with God and are going to be in need of rescue. But what we're going to find in a couple of weeks is the way in which that rescue is predicted. Again, we'll go deeply into this in two weeks says volumes about the way in which the story of the Bible is going to unfold. That is when man and woman sin and pull themselves out of alignment with God, God judges men in particular by cursing the ground. But to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he says this. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The older translations are a little more literal literal, when it says between your seed and her seed. Do you see the prediction of Genesis 3, 15? God is predicting that he's going to crush Satan through an eventual coming seed offspring of the woman. Which what that means is, is God is saying, I am going to allow sexuality to be the thing that will be the means by which we win this cosmic battle between the devil and God. Generation after generation after generation of erotic love experienced among these Jewish people is longing for the eventuality that will eventually yield salvation for themselves and for their people. Think about that. Countless males and females in these one flesh unions are joined together in anticipation of the Genesis 15 promise on the world. Last week, we learned that gender is determined by the genitals. This week, we learned that we are to use our genitals in such a way that it creates generations. You hear the root word there. I'm trying to phrase this as reverently as I can. Our sexual parts proclaim the gospel. They do. And I realize as scandalized as you might be by that statement, I promise you, if you embrace it, it'll unpack parts of the Bible that today make no sense of it make no sense to you. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, when we get to the end of this semester, we're actually going to look at how it is that God constitutes the community of the church or the early version of the church, which is the people of God from Abraham. And God is going to ask Abraham to receive a sign to mark him out as being part of that community. And it's going to be the sign of male circumcision. Now look, you're not reading the Bible if you have not had a moment in your life where you thought to yourself, of all of the signs, God could have chosen, why that one? I mean, honestly, right? It led uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan once to say, I don't know, why don't we get ma- matching jackets or something? <clears throat> but here's the thing. If God is saving the world through sex, then suddenly that crazy sign makes, us, makes sense, doesn't it? Again, every generation of men were circumcised as a sign of God's promise. Sealed by the way, in blood, no less, because one of those men would deliver the sacred seed that would give birth to the one who would give birth to the Savior of the world. In other words, every generation of people would keep the hope alive. And so God said, therefore, in that specific part of that man, there's going to be bloodshedding. How about a woman? Ooh, well, I mentioned last week that human civilizations have always been enamored with the female body. But what we find in the Bible is the devil hates the female body. You want to know why? Because he knows by prediction from Genesis 3.15 that one of those bodies is going to receive a sacred seed that's going to bring about the savior of the world. The devil hates the womb. So over and over again, you see the devil trying to thwart God's purposes through barrenness. You ever notice how many stories in the Bible are God coming to the rescue of women who are barren, whether it's Sarah or Hannah, mother of Samuel, or maybe even Mary's cousin Elizabeth? All the while trying to say something to the world that God comes in and rescues from the devil's attempts to keep it from happening. This means, thirdly, that every single female body exists to testify to that purpose. In Genesis 3.16, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your bodies, ladies, specifically the unique sexual system of your body, now hangs over a curse. And what's interesting is this is not a meaningless, arbitrary curse. Listen to Robert on this one. He says, the uniqueness of female suffering uniquely testifies to the saving suffering of the coming seed. Every single month, a woman's body will suffer and bleed, proclaiming the good news of a bleeding body that will save. Under the Old Testament law even, during that time of the month, the female body was declared unclean and sent out of the camp alone, cast off but all the while testifying to the one that would come who would suffer alone, unclean, and be cast off for his people. But of course, when that body finally does conceive a child, a woman, as it were, climbs up on a cross of suffering that lasts for nine months, the culmination of which begins with the breaking of water, a sign of Jesus' pierced side as the water poured out of his own body. Followed then by a literal explosion of blood. And I will resist the temptation to tell stories of why I was there at every one of my children's birth. It's unbelievable how much blood. But what happens when the baby shows up? All the pain is forgotten. And every woman attested the fact that it was all worth it so she could have the child in her arms. Sounds very much like the book of Hebrews when the writer looks and says, but for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Ladies, my word, your bodies are holy. They preach amazing things. and I could go on with this for a long time of how much God uses sexualized imagery to describe his relationship to his people. We could go to Isaiah 62 when it says, As a young man marries a woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That is sexualized imagery. You see it again in the prophet Hosea chapter 2. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. Even more explicitly is Ezekiel 16 where God is speaking to the nation of Israel. Listen to this. He says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Hmm. Finally, of course, the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary, and she conceives of the one who grows and begins to set out on an earthly mission. But as soon as he is reaching the close of that earthly mission, he sits down with his followers and enjoys a meal. And as he does, he breaks bread. And you know what he says? He says, this is my body which is for you you see the elevation of the body and of course when our earthly journey is through like we read this morning we will celebrate with our betrothed at the marriage supper of the lamb revelation 21 says that we will appear to them as a bride approaching this groom in that day this is a profound mystery is it not Cunningham actually says that all of our arguing about gender and sexuality is going to fall on so much on deaf ears if we don't root what we are saying in a better story about sexuality and I gotta be honest with you there is nothing higher than what we've just described nothing comes close to this that this experience that God has granted his people is there to say something about himself and actually I've only scratched the surface here, Genesis is rooted in this profound mystery of one man and one woman joined together in a permanent bond of marriage because that is a picture of the healing of the world. So it comes to us very quickly, how dare we take it lightly? How dare we allow ourselves to, as a generation has arisen, does, to refer to our genitals as if they are junk, or to despise our bodies, ladies, because it happens not to match this generation's arbitrary standards of beauty. It's too profound for that. Our bodies have been sanctified too much for that. So yeah, Christine Imba of the Washington Post, consent is not enough to establish a sexual ethic. I would argue that only something as profound as what we just unpacked can adequately help us understand our sexual selves. So sex in the Trinity, sex in the Bible, how can we apply this to us? What does this say to us? Well, I do think tragically the church has fallen a bit on hard times here, at least in the 21st century of America. And I do think it's a strange statistic to highlight, but it does focus on problems within the church rather than always pointing fingers at those people out there. Because study after study is showing that there is a disproportionate amount of evangelicals who are showing that even in the face of the glory and beauty of human sexuality like we have just discussed, evangelical wives are disproportionately less interested in marital sexuality than even pagan counterparts. Disinterest. Could it be that the church is listening far more to the culture's use of sex than, than they are the Bible? I think so. Which means, among other things, that we need to enter into a posture, and I do think that the best posture as we face the generations who are working through what they think about sex is going to be one of sexual repentance. We have to get and stay humble about the mistakes that come in sexuality, everything surrounding from extramarital sexuality to pornographic addictions to disordered body image issues. And this posture of repentance, I would argue, is not just for the married but also for the single among us. Let me see if I can make an a, a, a application to both. First of all, let's go back to the married and that statistic about the, it's almost double the disinterest in sexuality, marital sexuality among evangelicals than it is outside. And our book that I read this summer on this particular topic was speculating that perhaps it's because for the last 30 or 40 years, Christian writers have been putting out Christian sex manuals. Bear with me these are things that are given to couples when they get married you've probably read them yourselves and during your wedding or maybe your uh, pre-marriage counseling but it's been demonstrated that if you look through the theme of these manuals the essential responsibility of a woman in marital sexuality is to make sure that the husband doesn't seek his sex elsewhere so you better shape up ladies you don't want them looking at porn now do you But then the authors of this book that I read in preparation for this message, it's called The Great Sex Rescue and I would warmly commend it to you. They are pleading with Christian men to please change that conversation. And the reason why is this, it's not alluring for a woman who feels so much pressure in so many other areas of daily life to also have the marriage bed hanging over her as the primary means of you maintaining your purity. That ain't sexy, as it were. So what they're proposing is, is a change in conversation. In other words, rather than talking about you know, focusing on what it takes to stay pure, what if we looked at the marriage bed simply as a place where we begin to seek each other's arousal, to pique each other's curiosity, to find activities that uplift rather than degrade and embarrass Things that are enjoyed rather than being expected or worse, demanded. And I realize I've opened up the biggest can of worms with those talks, but I'm just going to leave it to sit there, assuming that there'll be some conversations that you will have after that. Guaranteed. All right, but secondly, though, look, I didn't get married until I was in my late 20s. And so I at least have some idea of how these conversations make single people feel. But please don't miss an important message from our previous point. I think this is profound because, yes, the married do have a peculiar way of proclaiming God's love. But you know what, single person, you do too. Because there, while you wait for God's purposes in your own life, I would argue your single life uniquely and powerfully points to the purpose of sex. You want to know why? Why? Because there's coming a day, Jesus says, when human sexuality will transform and some version of it will actually pass away. Jesus is having a conversation with the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12, verse 24, where he says that in the new heavens, and the new earth, we won't have a need for sex in its present form. Why? Because sex is a sign. It's a pointer to something. And once we have the reality, why would we mess with the sign? That's the point. So in your singleness, you show every married person what it means to really long for the reality and not have what I would argue is a constant temptation to lean into the sign as if it's the reality, the way married people will. I know that's not a lot of consolation for people who feel like it's a burden to be single, and I get that. But maybe it just gives us a little more confidence as we wait for God's will. Let me close with one last point because look at verse 25 in chapter 2 of Genesis. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Hey, that's what it was like before the fall no shame. There was no hiding, there was no, no embellishing things to put on a good face. There was no anxiety about not being enough for each other. There was no hurtful language exchanged in the heat of battles, there was no shouting. See, all of those things are symptoms and expressions of a greater malignancy. And that cancer is called shame. Every one of us, the Bible says, longs to be known, to be seen, but secondly, everyone is equally terrified at the prospect. Hence the human condition. And hence the problems in your marriage. And so do you see now, and I bring this, I bring this point up every time we talk about sex from this pulpit, because I think it's so profound that when the gospel writers begin to sit down and write the account of Jesus' death and his dying, every single one of them makes note of the fact that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified naked. Now bear with me for a second. If you were one of Jesus' followers and you are just distraught at his parting, why in your written account of that event would you include that incredibly embarrassing detail in the account? Unless it was purposeful. That is, what if Jesus' nakedness was important? What if while Jesus was on the cross, he was up there bearing something on my behalf? What if in his body, no less, Jesus was bearing our shame? He was absorbing our shame, and he was neutralizing our shame so that he could grant us a robe of righteousness, true clothes that can cover us, so that you and I, clothed in only that thing that can really deal with our shame, can march out into the world with a better story about our bodies and about our marriages, about our singleness, a story of the gospel, the story of a God who is so loving, who is so preexistently exultant in his own love that he created human sexuality to demonstrate his love for his people. I said it last week, I'll say it again. <laughs> nothing comes close to this. Could there be a higher view of our bodies and how God has so uniquely created us as comes to us in the Christian tradition? mm nothing comes close. And maybe, therefore, if we take it in, we might learn something about the way we're to act that might, it might hit differently. We might see the world differently and maybe start to heal. It'd be a good prayer, wouldn't it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you bring us into that healing, because there are as many stories of sexual brokenness, I am sure, as there are people in this room. Father, we are intimately connected with our our sexual selves. And for that reason, the devil has tap danced all over us in so many myriad of ways. But Father, perhaps maybe we have focused so much on the negative that we've missed the beauty. We miss the largeness We miss miss the mystery and profoundness of what happens when we come together on a marriage bed. We miss what it was that we're longing for. We thought that what we needed was a better job. We thought what we needed was a new spouse. When the truth of the matter was, we needed to see the world through your eyes, to see your gospel that alone can bring healing. So Father, we ask that you would bring that about for us on behalf of your people by giving us a new story to bring to the world rooted right here in the book of Genesis. Would you give us that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.